This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action on this week's edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Over the next several episodes, we're going to explore the Albemarle FCPA resolution through a variety of lenses. We're going to open with Matt Kelly giving us an overview of the case, followed then with Karen Moore focusing on internal controls. Christy Grant Hart is going to talk to us about the holdbacks and the significance of those. And then we're going to have uh, some episode with lessons learned from the case. It's an interesting case, the largest FCPA case in 2023. This episode, Karen Moore walks us through the internal control issues in this enforcement action. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Albemarle FCPA Enforcement Action. We're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into it. Karen Moore, over to you on internal controls. Thanks, Tom. And as a long-term fan of, of this, I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be here. I feel a little bit like a groupie being asked to sing on stage. First, I want to preface the whole thing because I think we should all give a lot of nods to Albemarle beyond this big sea change in their, their sales structure. They clearly implemented a lot of change to its compliance and internal controls before, during, and after this outcome. And we're talking about bad behavior five and 10 and even longer years ago. Credit to the Albemarle that is today, which I think has a pretty good compliance program and has really set themselves on the right path. So having said that, I really, if if we weren't talking about this today, I would be using this as my rant. I think they got off really lightly. I mean, to Matt's point, first of all, where's the prosecution of this and other um, cases? When you read the facts here, and I encourage people to read the SEC um, order simply because it's an easier read uh, than than the DOJ, and it covers the same instances plus two bonus instances. They got this hefty discount, as you mentioned, Tom, off the bottom of the federal sentencing guidelines calculation. So they got a lot of credit, even though there was a late disclosure they got a non-prosecution agreement, not even a deferred prosecution agreement. So pretty light conditions there. The SEC settlement has no civil penalties at all, in theory, because they're deferring to the, the criminal penalties, but those were on the light side. There was no individual accountability beyond the clawbacks. And we get that kind of double credit on the clawbacks, right? Because you don't have to pay the bonus and you also get credit for the clawback against your penalties. So every dollar is $2 saved. There's no monitor imposed. So I don't understand on the facts presented that how they got off like this. I understand the, the cooperation and all the good work that they did before, during, and after, but th- this was when I read through the administrative order, my first thought was you cannot make this stuff up. If we had created some of this as a hypothetical on the facts presented, we get pushback that it was an unrealistic hypothetical, that this is not the way companies operate. Just to give a little bit of flavor, the, the Vietnam um, case, which is, I think, illustrative of, of the others as well, they give the sales to a sales agent with no experience in Catalyst, which is the, the product in question. They'd only been registered to do business in Vietnam for three months. He brags about his contacts in writing, gets a larger than usual commission for the region. So that's recorded. And then, according to the SEC order, he provides Albemarle with sensitive non-public information about competitors. He provides them with advanced tender details, samples of competing product, 
information on competitor bids and also together with Albemarle managed to get changes to the tender process that that favored Albemarle's um, bid. So it, it just made me think uh, um, a few weeks ago, I was watching a, an American football game, Go Falcons. I, I like the un- rooting for the underdog, but there were like five flags that littered the field on one play because there were so many infractions by both sides. And that's what it this felt like reading this. And I teach a, a course, so shout out to my Fordham Law School students. And this is a great hypothetical. It's like spot the issues. There are about 10 issues present here, just on the basic facts that the SEC provides. Albemarle clearly must have understood where some of the excess money was going. They, they paid the higher than usual commission, which the agent then after a couple of years asked to double because he needed to, here are my quotes, Jonathan, secure orders, win the job and avoid losing the market. It's just, oh, nice baseball cap too. So they eventually granted him a 50% increase in the commission, but it had to have been clear where some of this money was going. How's that for a law exam hypothetical. I did see one bright spot in the order. There was the situation in India where the subsidiary regional director actually warned the U.S.-based sales exec that he thought the company's India agent would pay bribes. Apparently, there were threats to put the company on this holiday list, which would prevent it from bidding on certain contracts. So the regional director warned the sales executive by email, expressed his concern that the India agent would cause Albemarle to violate the FCPA. They provided so many easy documents in this investigation. So yay, here at least the regional director obviously paid attention to his training and and the policy, although he didn't seem to have reported this through compliance, which might have been able to do something. So what did the the U.S. sales exec do? You think, okay, yeah, now I've been put on notice. Did he immediately terminate the Indy agent or take any steps to revise the arrangement? Of course not. He didn't. The U.S. sales exec not only ignored all that, but signed a backdated consulting agreement with the India agent calling for a 3% commission, which was noted was three times higher than the normal rate paid to the existing agent. And then shortly thereafter, they got taken off the holiday list and problem solved. No, no problem. As Christy mentioned, the, the SEC finding goes beyond the findings of the DOJ into transactions in China and the UAE. And uh, frankly, I don't really understand why the DOJ, maybe the facts just weren't there, but the DOJ didn't include them, round them up in the criminal findings in the NDA. But the SEC, the SEC, it, it's like the non-sexy twin brother of the DOJ when it comes to FCPA cases, because it's the whole Al Capone scenario. They're looking at books and records and internal controls, which is just frankly not as fun, but it's where so many people get caught up. And there were so many, to Matt's flashing neon red flag point, there were so many red flags here. Just using China to illustrate, I just noted some of them down. The agent was recommended by an official at the state-owned customer. A senior official at the customer was described by Albemarle personnel as the uncle of the agent's principal, despite no familial connections being disclosed in the due diligence questionnaire. So at least due diligence was being done. Compliance due diligence also revealed that the agent had no website and had only been registered to do business in the weeks before the engagement, which is something that crops up in other jurisdictions as well. And again, like with other jurisdictions, the commission rate um, was questioned as 
high. And, and as the engagement continued, there were more red flags that were um, present, including uh, sole source basis of the appointment and this incredibly high price that was charged to the detriment of the China state-owned enterprise, and then clearly to the benefit of Albemarle and their agent. And in this case, the SEC noted that there were no internal controls in place. And I guess that's why they included it and maybe didn't include it in the DOJ, because they really focused on all of these in India and the UAE. The fact that there were expenses that were being recorded as legitimate commissions and also discounts um, on payments, adjustments to sales, expenses, etc. And let's remember that even though it's subsidiary transactions, they get rolled up and consolidated into the Albemarle U.S. publicly traded company financial statement. We've got all this, and I don't know how much time we have because there, there is so much to do here. And the, the SEC, we've mentioned the, the audit reports, but the audit findings that the SEC noted said that sales agents were paid despite incomplete due diligence, despite a lack of an executed contract, despite having a contract that lacked required anti-corruption provisions and at rates higher than those provided by contracts, you know, and so on and so on. And it's just extraordinary. And I wholly sign on to the where was the audit committee here because you've got deficiencies. They did address some of them, but they didn't track them. I've got many more comments. We could probably do an Albemarle part two, but I think just the final comments I had was for compliance officers, what does that mean? And I think it's just a a real indication for us that sometimes we operate too much in our comfort zone, that kind of design and implementation of our program. And we don't take enough steps and broad enough steps on the effectiveness measures that we need to do. Are the right people getting the right training to spot the issues? Are messages about risk tolerance being sent in a credible way by senior leadership? How are deal reviews being conducted? Because here you had a pretty transparent um, insight into all of these deals. It wasn't thousands and thousands of customers. They were a small number of customers with very high value deals. So how are those reveals, reviews being conducted or the audit deficiencies being tracked? Is risk scoring catching what it needs to, to catch? Is the relationship between audit internal controls and compliance sufficient to, to get to where we need to go? Rich, very rich source of information and thoughts. And I feel like I don't need to draft any made up hypotheticals for law, my law firm, my law school exams. I'm just going to take some of the Albemarle fact pattern and stick it in there and see what my students do with it. Wow, that was great, Karen. But Christy, do you have a question or comment for Karen? Yeah, it's it's to Karen, but also everyone. Where's the monitor? I don't understand. It used to be that there was the big fear that so many cases with much less egregious fact patterns ended up with two, three, four, five-year monitorships. This being a non-prosecution agreement, but also this seems like the classic case where you find a monitor. Anybody have thoughts about why this just didn't happen? And is there a credibility issue with that? Is there a credibility issue with not issuing a monitor in a case like this where it becomes less scary and just it's not going to happen again? Yes, it is. Everything you're saying, Christy, I agree 100%. This is the thing that I'm starting to hear and more and more often is that the Justice Department will go to great lengths to make sure they do not have to be nasty people writing subpoenas, hauling you in front of a grand jury. Instead, they will give you the moon and the stars and probably, like I said, a new car for the general counsel so long as you just show up and go along. You could have a monitorship as part of an NBA or a DPA, right? That could still be part of this whole thing. If they don't want to have to go through the whole public 
prosecution part and potentially have issues of do we have jurisdiction? Is this too far? All those kind of things that we see at the legal battles here where there really are tenuous challenges that imposing a monitor as part of an NPR DPA is just part of that plea deal. And I'm surprised that this one in particular, that wasn't part of it. Yeah, I'm 100% with you, Christy. And it seems odd given the, that kind of statements earlier on and last year that there was going to be an increased use of monitors. It seems to run contrary, give them a, you know, light, get, let them off lightly on penalties, but track what they're doing. Maybe it's because there's such a distance between the last bad transactions and the resolution of the case. They felt that they'd done enough. I, I don't know. Let me try to explain that and going in a different direction. In the new corporate enforcement policy, they listed about 20, maybe 10 rather, factors for monitorship. Number one, did they self-disclose? And the egregiousness of the conduct is not one of the factors. After it's, have they self-disclosed, it is, did they put a new compliance policy in place and have they tested that? And that seems to be it. Now, they didn't report in the NPA whether those two factors were present, but that's the test now, and that seems to be where we're going. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special podcast series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action. I hope you checked out yesterday's episode with Matt Kelly taking the lead to give us an overview of the enforcement action. Hope you'll join us tomorrow where Christy Grant Hart takes up the interesting holdback issue which Albemarle utilized. This special podcast series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action is a special production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.